Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. Today, I'm here with Russell Case. Hello. And our very dear friends, Spiros and Erica, are joining us from New Mexico today. Hi, guys. Hi. Oh, hey. Aw, thank you for having us. Wonderful yeah. to be with you both. Very much. Well, I know that you, before we started, you said that you'd really like to do an opening invocation, and we're very, uh, we're very excited to have you do that for us, if you could. Yeah, um, we usually do these type of things in order to create a boundary between the space that we'll share and our regular day realities. And then uh, it can be anything. In this case, it will just be a short ohm and some audio. And then uh, then we can just imagine ourselves, visualize an audio feel the space. So let's do that. Please. Sounds great. Um, three, two, one. Oh. There's a quote from Heraclitus that I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's been returning. Whoever cannot seek the unforeseen sees nothing. For the known way is an impasse. Let's begin. Ohm. Hello. Hello. That was tra- transportational. Yeah, was I felt fantastic. super transported. Yeah, I mean, in this sense, it's a sacred space, but it's also casual, like the chai shop. So it's a space mm-hmm. that uh, we can hang out in and reflect and share. And we are, in fact, yeah. sitting here with chai. Happy to be in the virtual chai shop with you. Fantastic. Where Where are you guys right now? Are you Are you in... We're in New L- Mexico. They in said the they LA. were in New Mexico. In, you're in, in Taos? <laughs> what is a Taos? <laughs> we're in Taos, New Mexico right now. Taos happens to be home of the uh, oldest continuously uh, inhabited building in North America, the Taos Pueblo. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's also home to Taos Mountain. So um, it's in Pueblo, northern New Pueblo. Mexico. Yeah. 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 And we're here hunkering you on, You're hunkering down for the holidays, the high <laughs> holy days. We're hunkering down for the space between uh, what led up to the uh, elections, <laughs> and we'll continue <laughs> on until uh, after the elections. And, you know, it's also 
uh, here for Jupiter-Saturn conjunct, and we're still in uh, Kalsarpa in the middle of the uh, the serpent, all the planets being on one side uh, between mm. Rahu and Ketu, which will be until, continue more or less until uh, April or May. So we just figured everything's sort of shut down. We're already in a sort of reflective mode culturally and you know around the world in some way various waves and various pockets but la you know the u.s uh california and la in particular all terrible (laughs) 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 in the covid yeah if you don't have to be there why be there right (laughs) yeah yeah we um it's a it's an odd time to have a, a physical yoga space, um, so we don't we're we're all virtual right now. Um, so, yeah. like you said, we can sort of take it on the road, and it's been wonderful to be able to continue to teach, even though, of course, we can't gather together in person at the moment. Yeah, I'm sure you also experience the same thing, where now you have people from all over the world tuning in to your classes and uh, what you're sharing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, actually. It's it's really, in some ways, uh, very rewarding to be able to connect with people on the other mm-hmm. side of the planet. Yeah, um, where that was wasn't really. I mean, it was. I guess it was an option, but it wasn't being utilized for sure. So, yeah, absolutely. It feels like a a silver lining to obviously what's a really devastating situation. Um, mm-hmm. You're in Taos, and you arrived there from L.A., where the two of you have have a a center together that is is now because of COVID. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the doors are closed. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us how maybe how you how you came to be in L.A. and then how why did you decide on on Taos? Um. I lived for 10 years in Taos uh, in the 90s, um, and that's where I first decided to get in touch with and try some yoga, mostly because I felt disembodied with my uh, world. I was spending a lot of time just doing psychedelics and also uh, doing computer uh, programming, and oh. I was disembodied. And so I wanted something. I figured sex would be great, but it's unreliable. Yes. <laughs> in terms of regular but in physically but physically embodying <laughs> yeah but physically embodying. As people have said that to me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh los angeles was a choice um for both erica and myself separately in essence um and erica asked me to reflect that uh Part of the idea of Los Angeles, I mean, Los Angeles ended up being a place where there were pockets of people doing things that fit outside of the mold. So there were still people that um, could find a place at that point for under $1,000 a month and be a single mom or dad and have a creative life, but also be doing stuff for gigs for money as well. And so Mm -hmm. there were people that could do that intellectually, people that were doing that creatively in art, people that were doing that 
um, psychically, magically, sexually, uh, in various ways of being, there were people there that uh, were excited about it and would gather. So that was exciting, you know, ways to think about different ways to think about money uh, and culture. It's very much a city of dreamers, you know, a city of um, people who believe in often themselves, which, you know, for better or for worse, <laughs> but they also believe in, you know, in the creative spark. In the dream to some degree, whatever yeah. that might be. In some sense of magic, in some sense of possibility. So that's inspiring. That's the extra spark uh, that was uh, beautiful. And, and when I had my stroke, uh, which was sort of a, uh, we just call it a stroke because it's simpler to refer to it, but it was also a spiritual experience in a sense. And at one point during it, um, I was dead. The world was dark. I was in that space. It wasn't a cold space. It was actually very warm and relieving and comforting and holding. And in that space um, appeared suddenly, I was thinking to myself, good riddance. That was really fucking hard. That was a difficult <laughs> space. Um, that world of earth and stuff. And uh, I'm actually really relieved to be done with it. And uh, and then I started to see little 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 flickers of light, like fireflies, and more of them would start appearing. And and all I felt and knew at that point was those were beings of light, and that was all the beings I knew human and non-human alike, and they were people, things, entities that actually loved and loved me and shared with me that love. And I just was overcome with joy. And uh, I realized at that point that what I was brought here to do and why I'm here now isn't for any of the things that I thought I was here for when I came into that space. It's actually to share light with beings and oh, so at that point <laughs> at that point <laughs> I didn't really what to do you know I was sitting at sort of this uh lovely and strange uh post guru uh community in Santa Fe but I was sort of you know with just with hanging out with them and I was like you know I want to engage more with beings and I looked to my history and my history was a lot of yoga and so um, one thing led to another and we ended up, I thought, Los Angeles is a good place for this, a good way, place to hold space and share light with beings. Mm -hmm. That's, that's an incredible story. And I'd, I'd like to, to dig more into it. Uh, if, if you would, though, I, I wonder if we could introduce you a bit more to our, our listeners. They have a, a sense of of context for who you are and how things like a, like uh, computer programming or, or a stroke might've occurred and how um, someone like Erica makes a choice to, to move down to LA to live with a being. Like <laughs> um, Erica, maybe you could start. Uh, you were, you're one of the chosen people. Uh, you were born a, a Jewish child. Is that correct? <laughs> It's a little more complicated than that. Um, my oh, it is. Yeah, <laughs> my father is. Your mom's Jewish. My mom is not Jewish. Um, oh, 
therein. Yeah. So, <laughs> so therein lies the complication. Yeah. So my yeah, wow. my father is Jewish, and his um, his ancestors are from the Ukraine. His family mm-hmm. they fled to the U.S. Um, you know, from the pogroms happening in the Ukraine, and um, they landed in Philadelphia. Um, my mom's side of the family is Christian, um, and my mom did convert to Judaism, but not until I was two years old. So I was already born, and I was born oh. a non-Jew, technically, according yeah, to the most Orthodox. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I would, and, um, I'm not going to... Continue the conversation. <laughs> yeah, we already pretended Tim Feldman was Jewish, so oh, yeah, and anything but goes. He, yeah, anything I'm goes. Not, I'm not confident that he's not Jewish. But go, just continue. Yeah. So yeah, so my my father's side of the family was Jewish. My mother converted, um, and some of my mom's family when we were growing up, they were actually born-again Christians, and so they were convinced, you know, that we were going to hell for being Jewish, and um, Mm. they tried to get us to be Jews for Jesus, because then at least... At least we believe in Jesus. At least we wouldn't be going to hell. So, yeah, so it's sort of um, heathenness on on both sides, right? I wasn't born a Jew, and um, I wasn't Christian enough for the for the Christians. So, yeah, I'm home in that. Yeah. Satan probably feels exactly the same way in his heart that he's neither here nor there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The in between the liminal, and there's something really beautiful in that space. That's one of our primary um, spaces that we think about in the yoga and in you know sharing what we do online is those sort of liminal spaces in between that aren't categorized but are sort of transient, mm. like the journey of life. <laughs> mm. I'm really enjoying this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm supposed to kind of stay on the line of questioning, but at certain points, I just want to bask in it. Um, <laughs> so, how did you leave? How did you end up in the Bay? Because I I know you from other work, Eric, uh-huh. and, I, and I know you from the Bay Area, yeah. uh, working with yoga and kids. But uh, I, you strike me as being from there. Uh, but your family's from Philadelphia. Uh, I was born in Boston, and then we we lived in Philadelphia for a little while, and we moved out to California to the Bay Area when I was twelve. So oh, you're neither again, here not nor there. there, not there. <laughs> you grew up in the Bay Area, though. <laughs> yeah, a you lot were of probably all enough though at that point. I'm sorry. Old enough. You were old probably enough. already your full height though. Oh. <laughs> I was pretty little growing up, actually. I, I don't know that I was my full height by the time I was 12. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, it's just growing up between the coasts. Um, uh, but, I, yeah, I, I feel like uh, I'm from the Bay Area, you know, grow, growing up there since I was 12. I went to college in the Bay Area. I went to the University of California, Berkeley. Um, I spent most of my years, you know, from the time I was 12 onward in and around the bay so i feel she very much at home there grew up though in palo alto sort of being a rebel against her parents who were uh computer scientists and uh, uh. and so she has this attraction repulsion to the com- computer world and to media in general but less media more just like 
uh, engineering. Uh, but she yeah, has very knowledgeable of it too. Wow. I don't that's know. Such a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> because that sounds something very similar to, to your story, um, sort of an attraction mm-hmm. to, to engineering exactly. and a repulsion from it. Yeah. Um, before we, before we, we speak more to that, though, um, if I could just ask another question to Erica. Um, uh, did, you, did you also follow your parents into, into engineering at, at Berkeley? I did not. Uh, Was contemplative practice a a draw for you at that age? What were you doing? It was, yeah. I started a yoga practice and a contemplative practice when I was a teenager. And so by the time I was at Berkeley, that was definitely a threat. You know, it was part of the rhythm of my days. Um, When I was at Cal, I was practicing with Vance. Um, Oh. Oh, my goodness. I've slept with Vance many times oh. <laughs> and, and I have the pleasure of like, he's got the biggest warmest butt. And so if you're cold <laughs> in the night, you want to take his bottom and just bring it into your bosom and hold it. Oh, there. I, I didn't know that new, yeah. new fact about Vance. Yeah. 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 He'll, uh, he won't deny it. <laughs> but he was so, he was so wonderful. You know, he really helped me keep a rhythm and a steadiness um, throughout throughout my school life, which wasn't linear. Um, but he was always so wonderful. You know, he was one of those teachers that if I didn't show up for a couple days or a week or two at a time, he'd say, "I know you're busy with school, but I think it would be great if you, you know, came a, came on in just for a sun salutation." You know, he really kept mm. me sort of um, he he made me feel seen and like what I was doing, um, mattered. Like I was part of, part of a community that, um, that wasn't, that was holding me, right. That was holding me and encouraging me. Um, and that meant a lot. Did that feel, did that feel important to you? Did you feel like you were disconnected as you'd said, and that was unifying? I think just the rhythmicity and the community, um, was so important. I don't know that I felt disconnected per se, but, um, I have a tendency to be very in my head, you know, so as a university student, you know, going to classes and writing papers, it was very easy for me to get lost in my head and lost in that world of intellect. Um, and so it was really great to have that embodied practice as well. I mean, not dissimilar from what Spiro said. I'm, I'm also a very embodied person, but it's easy for me to forget (laughs) <laughs> you're also taught in body practices at a very young age yeah yeah how so yeah that's amazing to be introduced to these techniques when you're a teenager yeah it was such a gift um to receive those practices when i was really young and um and yeah how did that happen yeah the yoga project <laughs> how did it happen how was i introduced to yoga yeah. Now I started teaching at, at prisons at 18. <laughs> so I was an athlete growing up, and um, throughout high school, because we'd moved to the West Coast, uh, where the sports were different for, for girls. So back East, I played field hockey and lacrosse, and out West, they didn't have lacrosse for girls. They had lacrosse for boys. And they didn't have field hockey. So I jumped in the water and I became a swimmer and a diver and a water polo player. Um, 
And once I was, you know, moving into, once I, you know, was 17, 18, starting to think about college, I, I wanted to continue being in my body in that really, um, close, intimate, felt way. And so a handful of um, my fellow water polo players and I, we all walked into um, Yoga Source. I believe it's on Hamilton Avenue in Palo Alto. I don't know if any of your listeners know Yoga Source. And one of the teachers there, he still teaches to this day, Johnny. um, And he, he led this class and that was it. I was just, it was, it was such a beautiful way to be in my body in a way that wasn't about the competition of a sport, which I loved, but also was, you know, filled with a lot of pressure and came with a lot of other connotations. Um, and so I was, I, I started practice, you know, at a young age and, and I had, um, Spiro's egging me on over here. He's, he's asking me to. <laughs> Get to the prison. <laughs> so my first year. That's, that's, really, that's, that's <laughs> kind of how I, I think, uh, we met, though I think we might've probably met doing, doing yoga and Ashtanga yoga with, with, with Sharat, but we, we, had, we were very fortunate to bring you in to train the, the teachers that we had in the schools mm. on how to work with, um, say, kids who come out of a Title I environment and, um, you know, are transitioning their lives into the prison system. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it was an honor to, to be with you and your team. Uh, so I, I started yoga young, and then I... In my first year of college, I took a course called um, Teaching in the Prisons. And I went into prisons and taught spoken word and poetry to incarcerated boys. And I just fell in love with this work and with these incredible beings um, who weren't so different from myself. They just had different life experiences and, frankly, different skin color. And um, it was just so moving and so touching. And that became really my my passion. And I started working with the Art of Yoga Project um, when I was, I think, 20, 20 years old. So you weren't, you weren't a founder, I wasn't a founder. No, I was just a, an early teacher, one of the one of okay. their first teachers. Yeah. And I don't know that they would have hired a 20-year-old, you know, these days, but at the time, it, you know, prison justice wasn't something that was talked about in the same way that it's talked about today in criminal justice. Um and so, you know, I had experience teaching in the prisons and I um had, you know, minimal experience in yoga, but had found a home there. And, um, and so that was it. And, and I think, you know, just being close in age to the kids that I was teaching, I worked with primarily 12 to 18 year old girls, um, in San Francisco and Bay area juvenile justice centers and rehabilitation centers. And I ended up working with them for over 10 years. So I kind of grew up with them. Well, it it meant a a lot to me my dad was was taught yoga and painting in prison really? in Leavenworth, and it, and it, wow. he brought that home to me, and I and so I grew up doing yoga and painting with my dad, which is mm. pretty much all, still all I do, and so I think that um, <laughs> that that's that that gets ignored. I think the rehabilitation piece is 
gets ignored with the punishment piece. It absolutely does. Yeah. And I, I was pretty surprised, you know, that in an area so supposedly liberal as the Bay Area, that their justice system was so punitive, especially towards children. And it's changing. It, it And it has changed. Um, you know, one of the the centers that I primarily worked at is is closed permanently, um, which is excellent. Wow. They're moving towards group homes rather than incarceration. Um, and, and that's really wonderful, you know, working towards mental health care, looking at the, um, the various pipelines that boys and girls experience on their way to prison, um, sort of looking at the circumstances rather than the, the symptoms, right? Looking at the circumstances mm-hmm. of their lives rather than the behavior that we call bad. So a lot has shifted and we've learned so much, um, you know, in the last almost two decades, but, um, at the time it, it, it was really, um, it, it took a lot for us actually to, to be able to go in and teach yoga, art and meditation. Um, we were not welcomed by the, the facility at first, you know, we sort of had to earn our keep, um, and prove prove our worth, um, which we did over time, obviously, but I think that's part of the most phenomenal piece of the work that that we that we did, uh, Eric and I. And I'm going to put myself in the same basket uh, yeah. of trying to bring yoga and contemplative practice into educational circles. Yeah, is it's so different to go into a room where where people resent you as you walk in, mm. where 95 percent of the people there are openly hostile and critical of you and then then try and win that room over Mm. it's so different from when people come to you you know and say if you know like norman allen coming to guruji he's an eager student he's there he's begging to learn but when you walk into um a um whether it's a an an institution a correctional institution or you walk into um, a, uh, a, 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 what are those teacher conferences called where they do training, where they teach teachers how to teach? Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> developmental day. Yeah, yeah, d- yeah, developmental day. When you walk, yeah. It's a very similar group of people, actually. But um, the, <laughs> the correctional institution and the, and the teacher development days. But um, <laughs> It's a fine line between uh, <laughs> and uh, public elementary school. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Especially, you know, in some of the areas that you were working in, Russell. Yeah, it's it's a the Stanford Prison Project is a good model of, of you go one way, you go into one room and you're like this, you go into the other room, you're like that. And um, you know what was interesting though, what I found, you know, I I definitely had to sort of. Um, I don't want to say prove myself. There was a lot of humility just showing up, you know, in these spaces where I do have the ability to come and go, right? And these yeah. these um, kids primarily who I'm working with are locked up, you know, they are there. Um, and, and at first there was that sort of what you're speaking to, that sort of hostility. But because I was in there so often, I really, you know, developed long-term relationships. Um, and even if, uh, kids were coming and going through, uh, 
from the institution, there was usually at least one person who knew me, you know, and I had an in, right? So it was like, oh yeah, she's cool. She gets a pass, you know? And what I found was that they were so desperate, right? They have nothing. They're locked up. They have had their social lives taken away from them. They'd had everything they know, their school, their diets, their communities, their parents taken away from them. Sometimes their kids taken away from them. And they were so grateful for an hour of freedom, right? An hour where they could be in their bodies, an hour where they could be out of their heads, out of the prison of their minds, right? And that's the same thing that we want on the outs, you know? And I think that sometimes um, that almost felt freer to me. It almost felt um, like the, the population that I was working with in prison was more open, you know, because they don't have ideas about what yoga are. They're not paying you to get their money's worth, you know? Um, they're there because they want to get out of their cells, <laughs> you know, and move their bodies. Um, and I find that sometimes, frankly, a yoga studio can be a more hostile place. <laughs> yeah. the, need, the need is so great that that the response rises up to... Yeah. Because the need is so great. Yeah. Yeah, And because these are really incredible tools, right? I mean, like you Mm -hmm. said, Russell, you still paint and do yoga. Like these are the seeds. These are the really powerful tools that we all know work. Um, Sometimes we, you know, I think we've been doing it so long that we forget how powerful they are. I mean, desire itself is its own sort of pull. And that's really what takes us through the journey in some ways. I was just reading in uh, Henry Corbin's uh, uh, Mundus Imaginalis, Mm -hmm. he tells the stories, and he's basically telling stories of the uh, imaginative faculty in uh, in Persian uh, literature of, uh, of that cognitive ability of using the mind, and they talk about angels and angelology. And the angels don't have a space like we have. It's like called a nowhere, but the no non-space space doesn't, you don't have to travel by foot. I mean, with your sense organs, you travel by desire and resonance in shared spaces of the heart, of the soul Mm -hmm. that you're, that you're feeling. And those feelings is, are the journey and the shared space are the cities Mm -hmm. in that imaginal faculty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how important the imagination is, you know, for us as beings. Painting and doing yoga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, it's incredible because I, I feel like one of the things that you get with, with people who are attracted to Ashtanga Yoga is a group of people who have, as a, as a community or as, a, as our culture, is a, a group of people who have come face to face with the prison that is reality. Mm-hmm. and that there's no escaping it. And so wh- how am I going to get out of here? Yeah. How am I going to manage this now? Because I fundamentally understand that I'm in the same, that I'm in this, I'm incarcerated in the same way as I would be if I was in, in Leavenworth or, or Lexington in some facility. And I, I'm going to die here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's so much of, you know, what brought 
both of us to the practice, you know, and, and almost the practice as a space of resistance, right? And I think that's, um, that's what inspired me to, to continue working in the prisons because I think that the practice can be this place of resistance where we resist the prisons of our minds, we resist the prisons of the social system of which we're a part, you know, of the capitalist system that attempts to flatten us, you know. And I think it really can be this powerful point of, um, yeah, I, I don't know that you didn't use this word, Russell, but a, a point of escape, a point of um, mm-hmm. enlightenment, right? Yeah. <laughs> On its best days. <laughs> I mean, through its rhythm, through, it becomes a scaffolding, a sort of membrane yeah. from which... Uh, other things that we've been resisting, that we've been holding up, can be let go of and relaxed. But I do think it's a pretty revolutionary thing, you know, to to say I'm gonna I'm gonna step into my body, I'm gonna step into my mind, and really take a look around here at what's going on. You know, what is influencing it? What's happening in here? I think that's not taught, you know, very often, and I think yeah. it. It can be um, just so empowering and so revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a way, it's even resisting the uh, prisons of our bodies, you know, as we're trying to go beyond what, you know, normal human capacities yeah. will be, right? We're yeah. exploring yeah. what is possible. Yeah, it's exploring the limits, exploring the bounds, exploring, like Spiro said, sort of the, the, scaffolding that are limits but that also open up creative spaces i mean the body is a sort of memory bank as we know so that whatever it's less about having like transcending like one mimicry mimesis of what the pose looks like to another but more about discharging our own structural like grasping and fear and all those other aspects of ourselves that we you know, define ourselves with. Mm -hmm. And so yoga and the practice of it allows for a space for that to be different. And Mm -hmm. we don't, you know, we didn't come here with a set of ideas about, you know, I mean, we may have now that it, now that yoga has a lot of ideas surrounding it, but we come to it also as a place to lay down our, our arms and lay down our, what we're wearing and just like, practice and meet ourselves struggle with ourselves yeah and that in itself is the is the greatest gift Mm -hmm. um to have a space where that can actually happen without uh anything attached to it ultimately it's always been my sort of like yeah the buddhist will sit and stare at a white wall for Mm -hmm. a decade or two and in the same way, it takes that long that long to actually, you know, unpeel to have yeah. the onion sort of peel away a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Spiro, I think that's that's fantastic. I, that's actually how I met you. Is is that um, in the Puck Building in New York, in one of Batabi Joyce's or Guruji's tour stops, um, you were giving a gift. You know, you were handing out uh, chai, and I, and I, I've, it's just very uh, incised into my memory to see you sitting there with your your little beard and, <laughs> and uh, 
is fantastic. I, I, can you tell us a little bit how you came to be sitting in that chair at those tour stops with, with Patabi Joyce? Really, it was uh, the towers falling in 2001 in New York um, mm-hmm. on Sarah Swati's birthday. It comes back to Taos, actually. Yeah, Taos actually is has the Hanuman Temple here, the Neem Kroli Baba Ashram. And uh, I have a few friends mm-hmm. here who... Uh, make chai and would hold chai shop on their own, but it was all around the the temple scene here. Um, and I was in New York, and I had a friend that had also moved to New York. Um, and basically, the towers fell down. I was already in conversation with my friend. I was like, maybe we should open up a chai shop or just serve chai on the street. And then when the towers fell, it was clear that, um, you know, we were doing what we could to like go beyond barriers to get to a room to practice yoga. Um, You know, people are crying, losing loved ones. It smells like, you know, rotting flesh and, you know, Mm -hmm. aerosol and the air and dust. And, uh, but we're still showing up. I think the day after we didn't, but the day after that we did. And, um, and it was a joy. It was like something that we could do to be together and to, mourn but also just show our livelihood our life together uh during this transitory time um and then at the end of that towards the end of that time uh you know patabi joyce was in town in new york for a month at that point and uh eddie was like uh yeah we're having a gathering at the puck building and uh he was like or I said, who's making the chai? Obviously, I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. together. Uh, and he said, you make chai? And I said, yeah. But I was kind of lying out of my teeth, lying through my teeth. Or some sort of backward time <laughs> causality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and nonetheless, I left a little conversation. I had to call my friend. I was like, okay, now I have to make chai. <laughs> so we had to go out and buy like 10-gallon uh, yeah. pots. And, you know, 10 and a 12 gallon pot on, on a Bowery. Uh, and uh, we walked, we made chai and walked it over like five or six blocks to the Puck building, boiling hot. And that was the first yeah. time. That was the first time that I, I had made it. We had made it. And uh, we served tea to the community of people that gathered for that sort of collective yeah. morning. And, um, and then Eddie was like, hey, do you want to make top chai at the, at the school? Yeah. <laughs> you, you and your girlfriend can come for free, and you can keep whatever money you make. And I was like, perfect. I was looking wow. for it. I was also doing some tech stuff on the side, but uh, that was part of the transition. So at that point is how um, that sort of inter- intermediary space sort of got uh, embedded in me. It's like um, the smell of, ch- of, of ginger. Mm. Uh, people yeah. would come, you know, attached to just coming to Eddie's because they'd smell the ginger when they got there and they'd get the reward of chai at the end. And it was sort yeah. of this this little chai shop spot was like the in-between spot between like after you've practiced, but before your day begins, right. before you go on into yeah. your regular life, you know, you yeah. have a cup of chai. And in that time, there's a little um, bookstore there of all the tantras and, and samitas and, and 
yoga sutras and various texts that I, I would just read. And that's sort of how I cut my teeth and all that and met New York City people. You're not from New York, then. You're actually, are you from New Mexico? I'm from West Virginia. No. I'm, 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 a, I'm a hillbilly. Yeah, I grew oh up. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Are you, was there like a, like a Greek Orthodox hillbilly community? There is. I mean, we were in Athens, Ohio. It's, it's where I was born in West Virginia, but I was raised in Ohio, in Athens, Ohio, and Athens just Greeks went to because it sounded Greek. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Wow. And were your parents born hillbillies as well, or did they move there to become hillbillies? Uh, my, I'm a, I'm a first-generation Greek, so second generation, second generation. So my parents were born here, but they're, but my grandparents were all born in yeah, second generation. My grandparents mm-hmm. were born in Greece. Uh, okay. And so. I'm, conf- I'm a little confused. How do you actually say your name? Because I thought you were Spiros, I think, until this week. And people, I kind of think, I think his name, I think his name's Spiro Harmony. Oh. It's both. Yeah, it's both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How can two things be different, or one thing be both? Two different things. <laughs> I can say multitudes. <laughs> I contradict myself very well. Then I contradict myself. I'm vast. I multitudes. Yeah. All things are contained within you, and you are also all things. All mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we are. I mean, and and uh, there's a plurality of identities that we have in various roles uh, in our life and our community. I'm sure that Harmony is very different as a mom in that sort of LARP. And uh, <laughs> apparently, I'm very bossy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but we yeah we have different you know we have different personalities depending on our context. In fact, we're largely a reflection of our environment. In that sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. so yeah, that's amazing. And does that then your environment then change when you're called Spiro or Spiros? <laughs> I think I, I generally I go by Spiro verbally, and um, unless it's it's more formal in Greek. In Greek, uh, OS is sort of a masculine noun. Most OS, OS, most masculine nouns end in in an OS, so mm-hmm. it's just. Part of that, and I. Uh, but growing up American Greek or American, it always meant a plurality. And so, uh, yeah. I used to. I used to in college mostly sign with the S in parentheses. <laughs> 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 so I was a parenthetical. Uh, 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 uh. So, in, wait, did you go to college in Ohio? Yeah, in Ohio University. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. You're a Buckeye. Of course, you're a Buckeye of all well, things. I, and did Buckeye you... was in Columbus, and I did live in Columbus, but uh, I went to Athens, Ohio, which is uh, okay. a, a smaller school. Okay. And you studied engineering? And... My, uh, my degree is uh, a self designed study called. Uh, Quantum yogurt, a relative and uncertain study of active culture. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's for the first years of a self-designed 
study, yeah. That's a rich broth is what that is. Um, I feel like you've been doing that ever since. Yeah, that's been my life's work. That's the... (coughs) Yeah. I so this is probably uh, 1986 uh, to 90. Yes, this is, is it? college years. Yes, is that when you were, is that it exactly? Did I get it exactly right? You got it exactly right. You're That's good. incredible. Okay, you're good, you're good Russell. Keep Sorry. it up. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. So 86 to 90. I also kind of imagine you're um, immersing yourself in a bath of acid. Um, acid yeah acid actually changed my life and and uh gave me a voice um early on and yeah it was weird i was in the suburbs of cleveland and um we sought it out a lot i i i was just appalled when i first actually heard the grateful dead after hearing reading so much about lsd um and then hearing it it just sounded like jangly hillbilly music which i was sort of (laughs) yeah that's right yeah yeah tony um speaking of hillbilly music i just want to say an r.i.p to tony price who Mm. who is a guitar player on the pizza tapes for uh david grissom and and jerry garcia really Mm. sad about that today but uh, but go on from the hillbilly stuff we just saw jerry garcia in uh invasion of the body snatchers he plays the banjo player. Are you fucking kidding me? It's no. It's really beautiful. It's, it's actually an excellent very, film. Very psychedelic, paranoid, takes place in San Francisco in the late 70s. Very worth visiting or revisiting. Yeah. Because I just showed our kid the trailer because we're trying to teach him about the show, Stranger Things, and where all these references come from. I said, uh, look, Jed, this third season, this is all about the invasion of the body snatchers with the great Canadian. Um, you must because pods are a big part of it. And, yeah. and we're, yeah. It left us with wrestling with, you know, like you can definitely see how the paranoia lives on in today's uh, political environment. Um, sure. And, and, you know, back in the seventies, there was a clear us versus them, the individual versus the, the collective, you know, the churning, you know, uh, gingerbread house people uh, that go to work every day and blah, blah, blah. And this was sort of against that in a way. But, it, you know, it doesn't take into account um, the hyper-normalization Adam, Adam Curtis. Adam Curtis's uh, whole critique of that whole culture. He critiques mm-hmm. Patty Smith saying that, you know, basically the, uh, you know, glorification of ourselves and our own quest just sort of was the seeds of capitalism and marketing to the individual. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, in some sense nowadays, we kind of want a collective force. We want the, the us in our uh, political voices and so Invasion of the Body Snatchers was sort of wrestling with that. We were wrestling with it, even though it was a great film. We were so entertained. And enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Because I, I had heard this recently, and, and I think that really is a, is a wonderful articulation of the, of, the, of the thesis, that Trumpism has its birth in Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin's um, 
you know, guerrilla theater and anti-establishment and in, intense critical paranoia of the establishment that that come coming out of that is a uh, rebellion at any information that appears credible and th- that kind of community can be easily easily swayed and i and i and i imagining these you know tens of hundreds of thousands of baby boomers who you know who are critical anti-establishment baby boomers um have grown up to be trumpists mm. yeah um the uh We've been spending a lot of time on the uh, LARPing, live action role playing uh, part of like QAnon and sort of what that has to do with. Um, I mean, that's the foundation of QAnon. I mean, if you actually do the research, uh, yeah. you'll see that uh, there was a group of people, some of which I'm friendly with, so a lot of them are in the Bay Area, of people that started making money with from cell phone companies that were creating. Uh, imaginal role-playing games to play with your phone early on when cell phones were new. And um, that became, that sort of idea got picked up when they saw all the mistakes people were making in believing, you know, it's very much like War of the Worlds type thing where people have this sort of, they couldn't, they lost sight of what's real. And so that exploited by the military and by military forces um propaganda and so then QAnon came in and sort of plays to that precisely which is why a lot of yoga teachers acid heads or people that don't really have viveka deeply implanted um get swept away in the fervor Mm -hmm. of that sort of shared vitriol for society for the government. You certainly do see a lot of anti-vaxxers in our community. <laughs> um, and there's a weird sort of Venn diagram between anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers, and that's the yoga teacher. The same, you know, political marketing also. Yeah. I was just going to say our friend Eric Davis, he lives in San Francisco. He has a book out called High Weirdness. Um, and he says, you know, it may start out as a game, but it ends up as a whole world, you know? And I think that's been something really interesting to think about when we think about, uh, like both of you are speaking to, you know, anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, QAnon. I think, um, these things that sort of start out, you know, you're just sort of curious, oh, what happens if I sort of follow this, this thread as they call it, the breadcrumbs, right? Um, Mm. and, and then it actually, there's a word called, uh, apophenia, which means sort of seeing patterns where there perhaps aren't any, you know, so you're making these connections, um, you're seeing connections that are erroneous, but they, they're, they're very real. They're there. They're, it's undeniable, right? But, but they're not causal. Um, so this idea that, that something sort of starts out all fun and games, you know, but it ends up as a whole world. And what we're left with is this very cult-like um, ethos, and, and it can be quite harmful. It is really harmful in a lot of the cases that we're seeing. I mean, we can also peel away not too far from that is also our 
you know, what we imagined when we first started doing yoga and when we go to Mysore and when we get in a room and we find ourselves sort of open to uh, what's actually happening. And it's very sensitive to some collective ideologies. And uh, there's, it's not that far away. In fact, there's still live action role playing that's happening in our yogic uh, ideologies that is, has some similarities and draws into, I mean, the whole LARP thing, the whole QAnon thing brings some of those ideas into question, like what is a guru? Um, what mm-hmm. is our collective? What are we aiming towards? What are we sharing? Mm-hmm. Spiro, are, are you suggesting that, uh, this is really fascinating, are you suggesting that there's an element of live action role play when we interact with someone like, like Sharat? Uh, or our yoga teacher at home. Yes, I think. I mean, we're, it, it's the same role playing that's happening when we play our our parents. You know, and you know, uh, are we actually our parents? No, we kind of we kind of jump into the role when we have a child, and we're making it up as we go along. We're doing our best, but there's still some live action. You know, it's actually cosplay. There's a level of performativity always. You know, a level of taking on like Spiro said, the role and, and a, a certain a certain position, right? And you're a different person on the yoga mat when Sharat is teaching and you're a different person than when you're at the head of the room doing the teaching, right? We play these different roles and assume these different roles, and there's, positions. There's anthropology that can help and, you know, talk about some of the things that, go, that we go through when we're practicing yoga, Um there's a there's a, 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 a triangle that we've been referring to occasionally that's made by uh, Jamie Wheel. Now Jamie Wheel is a popularizer of it, but the what's the yoga? Oh, Victor uh, Turner. Victor Turner, and he he says that there's this like ecstasis that happens, which we all can sort of point our finger at our ecstasis of first getting involved with Ashtanga yoga, for example. And Ashtanga yoga for me was largely better than the rest or most appealing to me because there were no words. <laughs> you were in a room <laughs> quiet and, you know, you didn't have to conflate a whole bunch of things. You didn't have to hear somebody say platitudes that didn't actually make sense if you talk to them in person. Um, but you're mm-hmm. sensitive to it and you're like, oh gosh, I'm feeling really sensitive. That kind of makes a little bit of sense. You know, you're, so we're in a sensitive mm-hmm. place during these ec- ecstatic moments. Um you know, we become sensitive and then there's catharsis. And in this sort of catharsis, um, we, 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 make, we make changes. We do healing. We, uh, we deal with our, our injuries, our, our traumas, our, our ways, our of, wounds, of being. And then we have a communitas of, of a space with like-minded beings to transform and reestablish uh, a matrix. So these being sort of That's points of, of a really um, meaningful community, a meaningful culture, right. an ethical culture. Right. So what can happen in these situations is they, they can be pushed in various directions. They can go AWOL, which is how we see a lot of cults, for example, or mm-hmm. even corporate ideology. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a, a Facebook, for example, or yeah, yeah, 
that's it's, what's interesting about that is how it, at a certain point, if your if if your if your personality is performed, it starts to um, bring up serious questions about what the self is, mm-hmm. and is the self a personality? If the personality is malleable and not permanent, then what the fuck are you? Mm-hmm. That's fascinating, and it's actually one of our main points of contemplation between Erica and myself. Erica is right now a master student in London. Uh, and I think you said you were in Taos, Spiro. <laughs> exactly. Well, this is part of today's world. Not only that, but your real focus is on spirit possession in uh, Sri Lanka and India. And spirit possession is... Uh, is a way of looking, and uh, Frederick Smith argues in his tome, which is amazing. It's an incredible book, The Self-Possessed. The Self-Possessed. He argues that most of the readings of all the uh, old Indian texts are wrong, or at least not really establishing how prevalent possession was in the basic idea of the self. Mm-hmm. Um and so he thinks that any idea of grandiose uh, of ourself is missing the point, that actually a lot of the work was done to be possessed by great beings. Yeah. That aren't, you know, the, the being that we were born into. To uh, make way having, for spirit. To make way for great spirits and great forces. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, fundamentalist Christians who would agree that that is the purpose of yoga. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's, also, there's also a lot of fundamentalists, or fu- there's a lot of Christians that also work towards spirit possession in, in, in voodoo-type situations. Yeah. Uh, right. And not that, you know, not that it's this or that. Yeah, but Bob that- Doto is a person that's an Ashtanga teacher in Brooklyn. That's What's his name? Bob Doto, is, he's, he teaches Ashtanga-ish stuff. And Eddie had him on the show, too, but he's an old friend. Uh, but he has a book that came out recently called Sitting, in, Sitting with Spirits, which is about the Christian, okay. which is about Christians and spirit possession. Erica, I interrupted you. Oh, that's okay. I was, I was just saying, you know, it's, it's not that it, it is definitively this or it is definitively not that. I think it, it just gives us another perspective and another way to think about what the self is or is not, Russell, like you said, you know, like, well, yeah. if it's not this, if, if it's not this, maybe it's this, you know, um, different ways of exploring that and investigating that both textually, personally, historically, you know, philosophically. It's a vast subject. Absolutely. (laughs) It's maybe the question, who am I? Right. When when we were emailing you, um, you brought up something that I I was really uh, intrigued by in terms of of notions of of self and and what we project onto the world of of what is real and what isn't real. Uh, You had mentioned the tarot. And the and yoga, which was was fascinating to me because I, I don't even think Harmony knew this, but I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised that my mother is um, uh, someone who, as far back as I can remember, had always kept a bound copy of the tarot and, and mm. slept with it to improve its energy. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> very important to her in, 
and I have some familiarity with it because of mm-hmm. that for some reason. Um, for, for me, the tarot at its heart was presenting a, a person. I would and I would love for you to tell me exactly what it is, uh, but but at its heart, it seemed to be something where it's presenting you with a, a sequence of images in a particular pattern. And then it's at that point that we project onto these images, like the hanged man, um, a, a sense of uh, in, inspiration or insight is like, ah, this is what I've been hiding for myself. These are, mm-hmm. these are stories or that are, that I've been suppressing for self-preservation. And now I'm suddenly, uh, aware of it in, in the say the same way that this happens in our Ashtanga yoga practice, you go along in a practice and suddenly a pose that, um, has no, um, that isn't anything, but what it is. But when you do it, it causes all sorts of awareness of, of, of your body's, um, peculiarities of your mind's pattern, something like Kapatasana, suddenly you're thrust into a situation like, ah, this is who I am. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm, um, and I, I wonder if, if you could speak to, to us about your interest in the tarot and, and if, if any of that is, is uh, accurate at all. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. I think that both yoga and the tarot are um, more so than actual meanings encoded in any one card or in any one pose. They're messengers, right? They're ways of seeing. Um, so both both of them um, offer this perspective, this mirror, opportunities to see ourselves, our relationships, um, and the world from a different perspective. Um, I think that often we look to yoga for the answer, and that can certainly be true with the tarot as well. We we practice this sort of divination for, you know, an oracular effect, right? Some sort of oracle mm-hmm. uh, telling. But um, really, both are, are these transformational tools. Um, that allow us to see, you know, the, the magic of ourselves. Um, yeah, the, with, with uh, a pose, we may wrestle with something and reveal something through our own toil and, and that fine line between effort and surrender. Whereas uh, the tarot puts our notion of transformation before us like a screen um, and allows us to look at it with that sort of distance of, of a space that of which we are looking at from the outside, seeing it reflected. Um, and that the idea of the gaze is one of our main uh, points of discussion between yoga and tarot. Uh, where is our gaze? I mean, mm. nowadays, that's one of the tristanas. Um, um, it's one of the three places uh, where we stand in yoga. And it's actually one of the main things that I think is important with Ashtanga yoga um, is, is the Tristana. And our gaze in this case is, uh, is the question. Mm. Where are we gazing? What does it entail? Um, is it just a toe? Is it a hanged man? And then there's like things like the uh, hanged man uh, is also like a you know, gesture. It's a physical gesture, which is a lot like a yoga pose. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have some sort of mimicry that's going on with that as well. Like 
um, are we going to embody this? How is this going to uh, change us? How are we going to do that? And how is it going to do us? And mm. what, what does it carry? And I think just speaking to what Spiro was saying about the gaze, you know, I really think that our attention, our focus is one of the last things that we have that's actually ours, you know, <laughs> um, and that we can reclaim, right? And and so much of the world is about trying to take our attention away from us, you know, pulling it in towards Instagram feeds or, you know, pulling it out here to, we're consumers, right? And we're, we're most productive in capitalist society when we're consuming. Um, but, but if we can pull away from that and, and claim our attention for ourselves, which I think is what we're doing in practice, right? We set aside the phone, we set aside life for that hour, half hour, whatever it is that we can squeak out. Um, and our focus is our own. Our, our, we can put the gaze inward on, you know, whatever it is that's going on inside. Maybe it's stillness, maybe it's lots of waves. Um, and we really get that time for ourselves. And I think it's similar with the tarot that we, we get to put our gaze and our attention, our focus into this this practice and, and both are sort of these, these ways of connecting to something divine and sacred. Um, they might be mundane as well. Right. But there's the mm -hmm. profundity of the, of the profane. But, I really liked what you said about the gaze being sort of our last, the last stronghold of ourself and, and maybe, you know, back to the question of who am I, maybe that actually is all that I am. Mm. Work if we're all this pure consciousness or pure awareness, you know, and everything else is is role play 